If you did pull your cell phone out for your own good, I commend you to put it back where you found it so that you will not leave it in the pew, as it seems to be the case for someone almost every Sunday. And for the rest of us, it would be good to put it back so that you will not distract us as you were looking at the recent Super Bowl picks and what the spread is during this service. Today is Transfiguration Sunday. It serves as the bridge between Epiphany and Lent, which starts Wednesday, as we heard. And it's really important for us to understand the context of this morning's passage as it relates to the Old Testament story of Moses, as well as to our own story as people of faith following Christ. If you've ever read Exodus, you know that the people wandered in the wilderness and uh, Moses was confronted by God by a burning bush, but he turned his face aside because he didn't, uh, he knew that God was too holy to look at uh, directly. But later, when Moses and God got to be more chummy, and Moses probably assumed too much, he asked God if God would show him his face. And God said, well, I'll tell you what, no one sees my face and lives, so I'll put you in a cleft of the rock, and when I walk by, you'll be able to glimpse my backsides. Later, when they came to Mount Sinai, and it was time to deliver to the people of Israel the law and the Torah, the Ten Commandments, God called Moses up the mountaintop to meet with him, knowing that Moses would surely die if he took a direct sight of God, God came down and rested on, on the mountaintop in a cloud. God veiled God's glory in the cloud in order to protect Moses. When Moses came back down from the mountain to see the people, the story says that his face was so full of the brilliant light of God that the people couldn't look at him directly. So Moses had to veil his face to protect the people. With that story in mind, hear now the text as it comes to us in the Gospel according to Luke in the ninth chapter, verses 38 through 36, excuse me, 28 through 36. Now about eight days after these sayings, Jesus, these sayings were that Jesus had just told his disciples that he was going to have to go to Jerusalem and suffer at the hands of the religious authorities and be crucified and raise again from the dead. That's what he told them. And he set his face to go to Jerusalem, it says. Then they climbed this mountain. After three days of these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and went up this mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly they saw two men, Moses and Elijah, talking to him. They appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions were weighed down with sleep, but since they had stayed awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Just as they were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is so good for us to be up here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he was saying. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were terrified as they entered the cloud. Then from the cloud came a voice that said, This is my son, my chosen Listen to him. 
When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent, and in those days told no one any of the things they had seen. And then Paul's reading from the second book of Corinthians 3.18. And all of us, he writes, with unveiled faces, seeing the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. There are some things in life, probably, in fact, most things in life that we can't really look at directly. It's just too much, too heavy, too hard. You're driving down the road, you come to a stoplight, and there's a man on the corner broken by life or by alcohol, asking for money. You roll down the window, you may give him a dollar, but you don't really look at him in the face. You don't want to get that close. You're embarrassed for him. You sense his shame, so you just sort of turn your head. Violence is the same way, really. You can't look at violence directly in the face, at least I can't. When I was a young boy, as a teenager, I did. I liked to watch Sam Peckinpah movies, which were then graphically violent. I loved to watch NFL football and see the worst hit, and I would just get up and be pumped out. Way to go, you killed him. I would watch every Frazier-Ali boxing match there was. I loved it. Like a moth to the flame as a teenager, for some reason I was attracted to it. But the older I've gotten, I turn away. The TV comes on, the announcer says, these are graphic images that are about to show up. You may want to turn uh, your sound down or turn away. I always do. For me now, as I've grown older, violence only digs a deeper and deeper groove in my head. And I don't need more taken out of it. I need more built up. And so I just don't like to face violence. I'm not burying my head. It's just, it's just too much of it to face. We don't like to face ourselves, really, the truth about ourselves, if you think about it. We can't look at ourselves too directly. We look in the mirror and see the reflection of ourselves looking back, but it's only through the very eyes of our own perspective, our mind's perspective. It takes other people in community to help us see ourselves, and they are usually quick, if they love you, to tell you what and who you really are. A man who used to travel from Connecticut back to New York City to work every day on the commuter train would sit in the same seat, and the preacher George Buttrick would ride that same train and notice him, the same point along the line as they passed through the tenement area of the outskirts of New York, he would reach up and pull the shade down on his window, and as the train passed by after a few minutes, he would then lift the shade up. Finally, Preacher Buttrick asked him, I notice you do this every train ride. What's going on? And the man said, well, when I was a child, I grew up and lived in those tenements and it is just too painful to look at, and so I pull the shade down so that I don't have to see it. What else can I do? And Buttrick said, well, maybe the least you can do is to leave the shade open when you go by. Some things are just too painful to face. 
the light is too bright. It picks up every wrinkle and blemish on our soul. As Emily Dickinson wrote, tell the truth, but tell it slant. Success in circuit lies, never head on, but circuitously. The truth must dazzle gradually or every man be blind. This is especially true when it comes to death. We have to come to it from a slant, side-stepping it every chance we get. And of course, whether we dodge it for a time, we know that sooner or later it will knock on our door, and when we open it, we will stand face-to-face with it. The one we've tried to avoid there. There's a Zen story about a man of great wisdom who was being tested by the gods, and so the gods sent an angel disguised as a crane to the man to test how really wise he was. He passed every test, and then the last question came from the crane. The crane said, do you know what the most amazing thing in the whole universe is? And the man said, yes. The most amazing thing in the whole universe is that we live with death every single day in our lives, yet we can never admit that it's going to happen to us. We can't face it directly. And I'm not saying we need to. We don't need to drape ourselves in the dark garments of grief and death until the time comes that we should. I know people who do that they, they drape themselves in those clothes and wring their hands every day about the oncoming darkness of death. For, for some sense, I think, that if they, if they can do that, they might neutralize its effect when it comes, or maybe in some strange, paradoxical way, it might keep death away. You don't, you don't need to do that. Death will come. We just need to tip our hat to it, but we don't need to give in to it until it's time. The point is that as human beings, we don't really face much of anything in life directly. We're living out of our own little perspective and bubble of what is real and true and what we know. As Paul said in his wonderful book, the chapter in Corinthians 13, you know that love chapter, love is patient and kind. He ends it with, the older I've gotten, the more I've understood how much I don't know. He said, when I spoke as a child, I, uh, when I was a child, I spoke like a child and thought and reasoned like a child. But when I became an adult, I gave up childish things. And the very childish thing he gave up was this illusion that we can face the truth. Now, he says, we see in a mirror dimly, but then we shall see face to face. And finally, the ultimate thing we can't face, of course, is God. The Bible is clear about this point. When it comes to facing God head on, confronting the glory of God, the presence and holiness and sacredness and power of God, we cannot face it. It's so brilliantly bright, so strong, that if we look at it directly, we will not only go blind, as in a solar eclipse on steroids, we will literally go up in smoke. Which is why God always appears veiled in a cloud 
in the Old Testament in order to protect us so that God could come near for our protection. In this morning's passage in Luke's story on the mountaintop with Jesus and his disciples, we find the same overpowering presence of God. It's too much to look at, but yet it is still this power of presence that soon enters into the face of Jesus Christ and transfigures him, transforms him, which is what, when you take power and and it's too strong to use, you transform it through a transformer to make it available. God's holy power, God's glory is transformed into the life and face of Jesus Christ on this mountain. Paul says, God accommodated us through this, our ability to receive it. And God still comes ultimately in this cloud and terrifies all the disciples and they hit the deck and they hide their face as you must do in the face of that. Yet in the meantime, there's this Jesus standing on the mountaintop, shining as bright as you can imagine, full of the transforming and transfigured power of God's glory. I can't help but wonder what his face must have looked like. If you've ever seen Ron Howard's 1980s movie, and that would, I guess half of us there might be of age to have seen that. Uh, It's a great story about aliens who come to Earth to pick up friends who were left thousands of years before in a cocoon. They befriend the uh, human beings, and and the humans ask them if they would reveal them. What do they really look like when they're not wearing the mask of a human? And the alien would reach up and pull his face down, and there'd be this incredibly bright light that would just spring forth and you couldn't look at it. I have this sense that that's sort of, maybe that's what Jesus' face must have looked like during this transfigured moment. But really, what really interests me is what his face must have looked like when it wasn't transfigured. What did it look like when he was walking along the valleys of life? Don't you think it's odd that in the New Testament we are given no description of what Jesus looked like. We have his words, we have his deeds, we even have a description of his hands and feet. They were pierced through for our sakes, but not his face. I'm not sure of anything anymore, but I can tell you I'm as sure of this as I'm sure of anything, that Jesus probably did not look like that blue-eyed, blonde-haired, Gentile Jesus we see on the pictures around every church. In fact, the only picture we have of him, and there is one, comes from the prophetic vision of the Messiah as it is written by Isaiah in the Suffering Servant passage in 53. Isaiah says as he envisions this Messiah, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by others a man of suffering and acquainted with infirmity. And as one from whom others hide their faces, he was despised and we held him no account. This is all we get. This is what we get. No form or majesty that we should look at him as one from whom others hide their faces. This is the face of Jesus. 
This is my face, Jesus tells his disciples right before he sets it to go to Jerusalem to be crucified. He knew that he would be killed, yet he said it anyway. This is my face, he shows the disciples, transformed by the amazing power of the glory of God as he stands on the mountain, and then spit on by the religious authorities as he was readied for his death. This is the face of Jesus as he hung from the cross, despised and rejected and suffering, his head weighed down. No one could dare look at him there. This is the face of Jesus resurrected from the dead, yet no one identified him or could see in him who he was until he called him by name or did something that was peculiarly Jesus-like. In Jesus, you see, we have the face of God transformed, the image of God transformed into this one named Jesus. We just as soon keep him up there, of course, like Peter, build buildings and houses and booths and just keep him there because we don't really want the face of God to be on the cross to, to show the suffering love for each of us. But that's not the face we get. The face the gospel writers want us to remember is the face on the cross, the real face of what God looks like, suffering, weighed down by our transgressions, carrying the weight of our burdens and our sins, looking out at us through those beaten, swollen eyes as he mumbles, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. I hope you get the movement here. This holy other God, so far from us that we cannot come close, continues to descend and descend into the human life of Jesus Christ and doesn't stop there. Descends even more into our lives. Makes, through the Spirit of God, God's self available even to us. Accommodates even us empowers our own faces. It's the power of God that transforms us too. Gaze upon the face of Jesus. Follow his way and his love, and we will discover something about our own face that is being transfigured. This is why Paul writes, all of us with unveiled faces seeing the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, the Spirit. Ourselves, our faces transformed? It's almost unimaginable that we can by one degree to another be transformed into the image of God. But isn't this the point of faith? Isn't this the reason that we do this and our journey, that we might in fact be changed, if even by one degree? It might be that what we're most afraid to face is the possibility that we can be transformed by the reflection of God's glory. In her book, A Return to Love, Marianne Williamson writes, Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate, 
Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, talented, gifted? Actually, who are you not to be? You are a child of God. Your playing small does not serve the world. There is nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We are all meant to shine as children do. We were born to make manifest the glory of God that is within us. It's not just in some of us, it's in everyone. And as we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. And the movement here is that that's, that presence, that light, that glory is within us by virtue of our namesake as children of God. And in the incredible love of God in Jesus Christ, we are set free and liberated so that that light may actually shine and our faces be transfigured. It is the face of God transformed through the face of Christ and by the power of the Holy Spirit that this happens. All we need to do is open ourselves to it, to relax, as hard as that is for Presbyterians, relax and accept this gift and this power. And it will transform us into someone who looks not only more like Jesus, but who looks more like ourselves. Amen.